with some sort of porn, some women can be disgusted or titillated or turned on or both things at the same time, right? So it's opening the space for that dialogue and that possibility. Whereas a lot of the the anti-porn groups, one of the things that they were doing um, is they would do these like walking tours in like Times Square and other sort of porn districts. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, where you will get this episode and all of our episodes ad-free. And you can see our video episode, including this one right now, where you'll see my beautiful face and the guest's beautiful face. Who doesn't love that? And I am so excited to announce that all of you can get a one-week free trial on our Patreon. Join the ITBR professor level and you unlock all of Mary's True Crime and Academia Patreon episodes, our rewatch show, including Queer as Folk and Smash. You can even listen to us dissect Scream and The Exorcist. And I heard, rumor has it, that we have an upcoming Britney Spears episode, a Fall of the House of Usher episode, and yes, even a Saltburn episode, which is going to be quite riveting. So head to patreon.com backslash ivory tower boiler room, join the one week free trial and see what you're missing out on. And while you're at it, please follow us on Instagram and TikTok at ivory tower boiler room, rate, follow and subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Thanks so much. And I hope that you enjoy all of our ivory tower boiler room episodes. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and when I'm not here on the podcast, I am consulting with small businesses, undergraduate students, graduate students, podcasters, and those in media. So if you're curious about the work that I've done with my consultation services, you could just type me in on Google, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you'll see a few reviews pop up. I've worked on college admission essays for undergraduate students. I've revamped and expanded a small business's social media marketing campaign right here in Port Jefferson, New York. And I've also worked on a graduate student's thesis for her physician assistant program. So if you want to seek me out or inquire about my consultation services, just email me. That's the easiest way to reach me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. That's easy to remember. And tis the season for college admission essays, both undergraduate and graduate, thesis writing, dissertation writing. Um, do you want to create a podcast and you don't know where to begin? Media work, um, how to open a TikTok, how to start creating videos on TikTok, what to do with your Instagram. All of that I have done. So just reach out to me. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm returning to my recent roots. It's going to sound as if I haven't been doing queer feminist work in a while, but I had my final submission of the dissertation in August. So not that long ago. Um, time is flowing by. It's flying by right now, but... I feel like an academic, the academic world, two months is, two or three months is nothing. So, you know, articles, books, 
take at least sometimes two years for an article, three years. I think it depends. And academic books, I'm sure our guests will give us a timeline, but it could be at least five, six years. The whole process differs for everyone, especially if they're turning it from their dissertation into their book. So without me going into a whole rabbit hole here, I'm so excited to be joined with Dr. Margaret Galvin, who is Assistant Professor of Visual Rhetoric in the Department of English at the University of Florida. Her archivally informed research examines how visual culture operates within social movements and includes a first book called Invisible Archives, Queer and Feminist Visual Culture in the 1980s. We're holding it out for all of you right now who are watching on YouTube or our Patreon members here. But if you're listening, you're going to have to like search up her book so you can see the beautiful cover. It's published with University of Minnesota Press. I absolutely love them. So shout out University of Minnesota Press. In 2021 to 2022, she was in residence at the Stanford Humanities Center as the Distinguished Junior External Fellow, researching a second book about, well, I think this is the book we're going to be talking about, right? Or is this no. a new book? Okay. I, it's next project, yeah. Exciting. Okay, so her next project, was a, which is about how communities of LGBTQ cartoonists innovated comics through grassroots formats. So a nice bridge from Invisible Archives to your second book. I see what you're doing there. Okay, uh, so welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, Margaret. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I think right away, I'm just so interested in what got you invested in this topic about queer and feminist visual culture? Like, is this something that predates you being at the University of Florida? Like, I'm assuming this comes from your dissertation work, your studies as a PhD student, and then eventually, you know, graduating. Yeah, no, definitely. This um, this definitely goes all the way back to grad school. I, I uh, in my acknowledgments for writing the acknowledgments for this book, I got like pretty in depth and I was like searching my own like emails and like putting dates on things. But like, I think, you know, it goes all the way back to like, like right before 2010, um, taking um, courses with um, Nancy K. Miller, who is an amazing uh, feminist um, theorist of autobiography, of trauma studies, um, also was active, uh, you know, uh, I write about the Bardard Conference on Sexuality, and she was one of the organizers of that conference. So, you know, when I was looking at that period of time, she was like, well, do you want to see my copy of the diary, which was this um, you know, very, uh, what became a very contentious item and was censored during that conference. And so it goes, you know, all the way back, um, to grad school, but certainly something, um, I've been thinking about for a long time, whether, you know, uh, sometimes you realize something it's sort of been simmering for a while. Like I, um, in many ways, a comic scholar, a scholar of comics, although I talk about other sorts of visual, um, visual production, image text, visual production. But when I was little and small, you know, it's hard um, to find uh, comics by women. You go to comic book shops and they're often um, very much dominated by the major publishers, dominated by superheroes, which can be really cool, of course, but there aren't a lot of texts by women. And so, you know, when I started to learn about um, some of this stuff that's been produced in the eighties, but also into the nineties, which is more what I'm looking at my research now, um, but some of the stuff continues into that period, a period in which I was like, you know, alive and kicking to not see this stuff or not encounter this stuff or even 
um, something I've been thinking about a lot um, recently is like the zine, um, big sort of zine, queer core, riot girl movements in the 90s. I think I was perhaps a little bit too young for that, but I was, you know, I was making my own little newsletters in Microsoft Word. Uh, my dad's a computer programmer, so I'm like learned how to like make really cool newsletters and they're they're like sort they're of a piece with the zines but I wasn't like connected to this community and so you know there's it's always been wanting to find that and then thinking about you know how these these artists in community built community welcome people in and how they found people but also how some of this stuff had difficulty circulating or difficulty reaching the next generation um such that if you talk to you know a cartoonist today who's a queer cartoonist um, what were they inspired by in the 90s was manga and anime, which was like everywhere and had its own sort of queer thing and not some of this earlier work because it just was not necessarily readily available to that generation. So that's sort of like, you know, some of the longer tail strands of of what gets me to where I am with this book. Well, I love all of this. And the graphic novel has recently entered my podcast since I had on a uh, queer graphic novelist uh, named Sage Catunio, who just did this like reimagining of Jekyll and Hyde. And it's this whole queer reimagining. I went to Stony Brook and uh, knew Kay Sohini, whose dissertation is on the graphic novel, like um, her own graphic novel she created, I think. So like Alison Bechdel, I know, makes a huge mark, not only in your work, but it seems with someone who you really knew before starting this book. And I remember seeing Fun Home on Broadway. And then like, I looked into Alison Bechdel, right? Everyone out there, maybe they've heard of the Bechdel test um, of like how many women are on screen or in some kind of narrative without men being the topic of their conversation. So, you know, how did Alison Bechdel enter into your life, your work, you know, all of the Alison Bechdel things? Yeah, no, I have, I, um, there's a chapter in this book about Alison Bechtel, um, but I've also read a number of other articles about her. So I sort of like, if we, you know, if back in literary scholarship back in the day, there used to be people who were like one author scholars and things like that. If I had to choose just one, it would probably be Alison Bechtel because there's just so much to say about her. Um, her work is so rich. Um, and, uh, you know, I came to sort of thinking about her work through um, autobiography, through sort of community, through definitely Fun Home was the first thing um, that I was um, really engaged with. Um, and then when I was putting together the dissertation, um, you know, I was really interested, um, you know, in uncovering and delving and, you know, like talking about people who had got a lot of attention. And uh, my advisor was like, well, but you should do Alison Bechtel. And I'm like, but everyone knows about Alison Bechtel. I mean, there's like, of the comics that have been written about the most, you know, Fun Home is definitely up there with um, with Mouse by Art Spiegelman and with Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi. Those are like the, you know, the top three sort of super canonical. But then I took a step back and I thought, well, okay, so she starts cartooning in the 80s. Do we talk about her origins and her origin story? And we don't as much. People do talk about Dykes to Watch Out For, which is her long-running series. Um, starts in 83. She starts doing recurring characters in 86 um, and 87, sort of like that tipping point. She publishes her first volume of comics um, 
with um, Firebrand out of um, uh, Ithaca, New York. Um, she ends the comic like in the 2000s, um, but we don't talk about like where it started. And so, you know, she gets very much valorized as being this, you know, uh, independently genius person, right? And she is, she's totally a genius, but part of it is also um, she was synthesizing and connecting all the stuff that's happening in the grassroots. And she's like self-syndicating her news, her comic and newspapers across the nation and like LGBTQ and independent and feminist newspapers. And so they're sending her copies of their newspapers. And so before the internet is really widespread, she's able to see what's happening in different communities and feed all of that into her comic, which is a comic about um, a community of um, lesbian women who are friends and lovers and sort of the larger community that grows from there. But before it was that, it was just um, individual panels and thematic strips that were published in Women News, um, which is a feminist newspaper out of New York City, where she was participating just in the collective of the newspaper um, after moving to New York City, after getting like rejected from going to grad school. So if Alison Bechtel went to grad school, completely different story, right? Um, grad school reject uh, because it's amazing. Um, cartoonist and so I wanted to tell the story about her and her story about her and community that really hadn't been told and look at these early comics and look at also how you know what the art that she's doing in the newspaper that we wouldn't necessarily consider comics also influences the comics as well um so I have a part where I like look at these little images that she draws of women that are for the letters page and then it becomes a strip that she does um but even Alison Bechdel you know, in the 90s, there were articles about her in the comics journal where, and I quote this in the book, um, where the people writing about her are saying, well, she's the best known cartoonist that you've never heard of, right? So she's very visible to queer communities at this time, but she's not visible to straight communities or not visible to younger queer folk like myself who didn't necessarily have access or like direct connections into queer community until later. Like I didn't, encounter dykes to watch out for until much later um and so uh you know seeing that early work and seeing how um important it was is so formative right and to think about you know how she's just very much um about very much building her work in connection to community and that's one of the things i'm thinking about i guess it's throughout all of my work especially because literary studies has a impulse to canonize or to uplift like an individual author or artist and so I'm always interested in sort of not displacing that but thinking about how we are all or can be collectively oriented and being collectively oriented is also like a feminist politic right in this in this moment with her work well did you when you went for your PhD program first uh, what university did you go to Margaret I went to the grad center at CUNY so it's oh, a, okay. if you've ever been there, it's a great, it's diagonally across from the Empire State Building. So you got all the tourists up, outside trying to take a picture, an impossible photo. And then you have this amazing um, institution that's in an old department store building. Yeah, it's a very unique campus since I've done a lot of um, like symposiums, like attending events there. So yeah, you were in Manhattan at like the center of all of these queer feminist institutions that are there. Like I'm thinking of um, 
the Housing Workshoes Bookstore is a really cool place. There's also uh, the Leslie Lohman Art Museum that I'm obsessed with, um, which is free for everyone out there to know about. Um, I, it's like the only LGBTQ art museum I really can uh, readily think of. Um, so what was it like for you to like be in that program? I mean, were you in an English program that was adjacent with women's gender sexuality studies? Like, how was that whole experience say, do you think it would be different if you were doing a women's gender sexuality studies uh, PhD? And then like, how would that maybe have shaped your work? differently. Sure. Yeah. No, I think being at the grad center at CUNY um, in an English program, absolutely transformative. I always like to say, I think of us as a top ranked quirky school. Um, I, when I applied, I was wanting to do work in like feminist science fiction and they're like, okay, well, sure. Why not? <laughs> um, and just that ability to think non-canonically and to sort of like, uh, think cutting edge. I mean, uh, you know, even just now, like a lot of the digital humanity stuff coming out, there's a, a huge group of folks who are doing stuff at the grad center. Um, I won't, don't want to say before, cause I don't want to be like, I'm not into like naming things at first, but like doing a, a whole bunch of stuff and bringing people into think differently. Um, but you know, uh, the center for lesbian and gay studies, CLAGS is a huge, um, force to be reckoned with. Um, so, you know, there's just all this amazing uh, LGBTQ energy, uh, amazing activist energy as well. I think those for me, those two things intersect when I was, you know, in when I was taking courses, um, the Occupy Wall Street movement was starting up. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of folks were, you know, we were in classes and then people were down protesting. Um, and so that's it's just hard to not have that become part of what you do or to be thinking of sure, I'm talking about books, but it's important to think about how they circulate in the world and how um, the world and what's going on in the world, it influences what is in the books, right? Um, and so that is something that was very much, you know, in the atmosphere um, and very important to the work that I did. Funnily enough, I did not do a women's and gender study certificate. Uh, I did a film study certificate because I really wanted to hone that sort of visual aptitude um, in my work, even though I don't actually talk directly about film um, in this book, but it's definitely that filmic discourse is something that I'm thinking over thinking about how to talk about images um, deeply. Um, so, yeah. Well, so you being in New York City for your PhD studies, I just find it fascinating because you start us off on this really cliffhanger teaser of a moment with, you've already mentioned it, but there's this whole um, brouhaha over what's called the diary of a conference on sexuality. And it sounds like you call it this uh, image text or it has some history to it. I mean, what is this um, item that you're putting under such scrutiny, Margaret, just for everyone out there? Like, what does the item look like um, yeah. with your visual rhetoric hat? How can we all imagine what this text is? The holiday season may be behind us, but guess what's lurking around the corner? Picture that little baby with a bow and arrow. 
Yes, Valentine's Day is almost here. And I'm thinking of what gift can I get that my boyfriend will absolutely love and gush over? Well, he is a horror movie fanatic, so I think I have just the thing that he'll die for. Pun intended. My good friend Mandy Bangle is the owner of Mandy Made It, a craft company where she specializes in crochet and cre-cut handmade gifts. So whether your partner is a horror movie fanatic, I'm sure that they have a TV show they love. Maybe there's a book that they love, a music artist, a sports team that they cheer for. Mandy has you covered from shirts, hats, beanie hats, which I love to wear at the gym, car decals, Beer and coffee koozies, keychains, stuffed animals, signs that you want to put all over your apartment. She is ready to create any customized order. So head to Instagram right now. Type in at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. Slide into her DMs and she is ready to start working on your order. Just send her a few ideas. You could say, Hey, my boyfriend really loves horror movies. Or, hey, my boyfriend really loves the Broadway musical, Wicked. I'm sure she will figure out some concoction for you. And say that you heard her ad on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room because she's going to give you an exclusive ITBR free gift. She's also working on a new line of ITBR merchandise. So I can't wait to share all of that information with you. Make sure you mention at Ivory Tower Boiler Room when your gift arrives from Mandy so I can share it out on our Instagram. I hope you all enjoy your gifts. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm really excited to talk to you all about one of our ITBR sponsors, Broadview Press. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish mainly in English studies, writing, philosophy, and history. They are always publishing with an eye towards diversity, building a strong list of titles from women, people of color, and authors from other marginalized groups. If you haven't heard my Broadview Press interviews, you need to. Recently, I just had on Dr. Shannon Day, who talked about her book, Beyond the Binary, Thinking About Sex and Gender. And in the summer, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who gave us all a comprehensive history of what it means to be a philosopher who studies sporting culture. And of course, we went back to ancient Greek, literature, mythology, history, to look at the roots of athleticism. And last year, I had on Dr. Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock, who's actually going to be coming on the podcast soon to give his thoughts on the new Fall of the House of Usher Netflix series. He talked all about pop culture for beginners. And Broadview Press is offering an exclusive discount because of our sponsorship. So head to broadviewpress.com where you're going to see such a wide range of literature. Use the code Ivory Tower, I V O R Y T O W E R, for 20% off site wide all of their books. Again, it's broadviewpress.com. Enjoy your reading.
yeah, you know, the funny thing is I have students in my classes make podcasts about comics so they can think about describing something visually when you can't see it. So um, I got to practice what I preach. Um, but the the diary, which actually there's an image, the cover image is is sort of created from a page of the diary where the, the three women who created the diary um, put their lip prints on the page and tell folks to enjoy. And it's sort of like a very intimate moment of welcoming folks into the diary. So um, every year and still continuing, Barnard's had a scholar and the feminist conference where they try to bring scholars, feminist scholars, but also feminist activists together in conversation. And so they decided they wanted to do a conference on sexuality, um, which was a big hot button topic at the time. Um, even before uh, the conference, there were sort of forces brewing of what would become known as the feminist sex wars. Um, where some feminists were concerned about pornography and they thought it was violent or um, BDSM and they thought it was, you know, also violent and patriarchal. Um, some of this also, I think, is definitely connected to the fact of, uh, okay, here's a cat. Oh, I love <laughs> it. Yeah, we got a surprise cat visitor. Oh, so I knew adorable. he was going to probably come out, but I, I love my cat, so. <laughs> no, no, it's great. You know, there's an uneasy history with feminism at like, um, lesbians right and so I think that's part of it too um fighting about women's sexuality and women having pleasure and all this so all this discourse is happening right and so there's like 20 plus women um Carol Vance is a conference coordinator um my uh dissertation advisor Nancy K Miller is involved in 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 the fray um and so there's all of these women who are like planning this conference and they decide rather than just making a simple conference program, they really want to make um, what they call a conference diary, um, which will um, document the planning for the conference. And so they have all these early meeting minutes that they transform into diary entries, like visual diary entries. They begin off, each one begins off Dear Diary. Um, and it talks about the text or the entries talk about like the minutes of like what they were talking about um, different sorts of topics, right, that they thought would be important to have represented at the conference. And each entry also ended with a bibliography, right? So giving people points of entry to continuing that conversation in a moment before the internet made it so, um, you know, you could find sources more readily. Like bibliographies are really big um, in this moment as like a, a place of activist, activism and gathering together sources, especially in grassroots networks where, you know, finding sources can be very word of mouth. So they're putting this together. There are three artists involved, um, Hannah Alderfer, uh, Mary Beth Nelson, and Beth Jaker, who um, knew each other from college. They went to SVA you know, in New York. Um, they had been involved in a group, founding a group called Group Material, which is a big um, artist group, but they actually left the group um, around this time because they thought they weren't really good at handling feminist issues. And so they're finding other ways to be involved in like feminist activism visually. And so they help out with um, just right before this, a Heresies, which is a feminist art journal, puts out what they call the sex issue. And these three artists visually design that issue as well. And so they're visually designing it by like sourcing images from the New York Public Library, from the Lesbian History Archives, from different archives uh, um, around New York. Um, and, you know, so you know, the, the topic is X. And so then they have images about X, right? Integrated in it throughout. Um, when 
the conference was coming together and there was a sense of who was speaking. There were some big name feminists like Gail Rubin, um, Dorothy Allison, who's a well-known novelist, who were sort of on the, they were being targeted by sort of the feminists who were against pornography, who were against um, BDSM sex practices being seen as potentially feminist. And so they call up Barnard and they say, do you realize what's happening, right? And so Barnard being um, essentially conservative and wanting to preserve um, you know, their image, uh, they don't censor any of the women who are coming to talk, but they realize that the, the diary in being visual has like their stamp on it. So on the, one of the first pages, there's a letter that has Barnard letterhead. And it has like, a, here's what the conference is gonna be about. There's a page that's a description of the Barnard um, Women's Center and talks about the history of, of that. And so they say, no, you guys gotta change this. You gotta censor it. You gotta take out sort of Barnard from this, this visual document. Um, and so then what happens on the day of the conference, um, the people attending the conference only receive protest um, pamphlets from the groups that are protesting and they don't receive the diary at all. It goes out censored, takes the letterhead off, actually deletes the whole page of about the Barnard Women's Center a few months afterwards, but there's no diary at the event itself. And then um, it's funny because it's known for, you know, getting censored and it, but it only gets her mentioned. So I'm like, well, let's get into what it is, right? Um, but even at the time, someone like Judith Butler, when they actually receive the copy, they write a review of it and they said, actually, this is not at all titillating or explicit. Like it's pretty perfectly, like sure there are images, but they're not really like that explicit. And they weren't. Um, but these artists do go on to be involved in more anti-censorship materials. And so I talk about how this sort of very academic stayed safe, although apparently dangerous object then translates into their work where they're actually um, with caught looking in the late 80s, they are putting feminist pornography and traditional pornography um, on the page um, alongside feminist essays that are against censorship, right? Um, and so they actually do go into a more explicit territory um, when they're in a more, you know, activist space. They're not in an academic space, but for the conference, they were, you know, completely respecting the bounds of academic discourse and what would be appropriate. Um, it's just Barnard fundamentally misunderstood what was going on and perhaps made a, you know, a wrong move. But, you know, funding was threatened in the following years. And so there was sort of a way that this conference had um, a ripple effect. Like it was a huge deal. Yeah. Well, and I love that you use this as an entryway into your analysis and argument about the power of like these image texts or even all of these like queer feminist issues that get brought up by a plethora of female artists you start to hone in on. And I am curious, do you know the recent book called The Pornography Wars? There's like I, a book that was just published. I have not seen it yet. Or wait, is it the one? Is it the one by Elizabeth Grunstein? Or Gr uh, Grunfeld? I'll look it up. Um, I think it's by, let me just see. Um, oh, Kelsey Burke from 2023. Hmm. Um, it's called The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future um, of America's Obscene Obsession. I have not um, seen it yet, but now I have yeah, something to read. Yeah, it's done by Bloomsbury. Um, okay. 
and it, they're kind of it's for um like the academic uh public intersection so it's like a popular um it's a popular press but i forget if kelsey burke i think you know is at a university but they're kind of comparing it to books like rebecca traster peggy orenstein um so i'm just so curious because that document you're looking at margaret is so on the polarizing uh, views of how pornography gets viewed by feminists. Like, I mean, I've brought it up before on the podcast, but I've even turned to in my work um, to look at uh, gay male pornography or queer pornography, like how that wasn't really even thought of in arguments of anti-porn thinkers. Like I'm thinking of um, Shulamith Firestone, like, um, or Andrea Jorkin, they're not really concerned about how male bodies are presented in pornography. Like instead, you know, and hopefully I don't simplify it, it too much, but let me know if I am, Margaret, is they're really more concerned about how patriarchy can be used as a um, exploitative tool in the porn field, like how the male body is acting aggressively on the female body, not necessarily how male bodies come together in queer pornography with, you know, gay porn actors and help those who are closeted feel comfortable with themselves. Or even like in terms of feminist pornography or lesbian, you know, pornography, it's not about the empowering side. It's about there's acts of aggression that are these toxic fantasies in a way. And, you know, like from what you were looking at in the 1980s, was there a real um, split with feminist thinking, with even how like Gail Rubin is not yet really articulating a queer theory, but her work is so pivotal to thinking around queer studies. And I mean, what is that um, often quoted essay by Gail Rubin. Um, I'm trying to remember, but well, it's two. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because Gail Rubin even uh, writes such a glowing review of your book. So I want to ask you that. How did it feel with Gail Rubin weighing in on your own work, Margaret? I mean, that was a amazing moment. So it happened in some ways because I was getting permissions from Carol Vance, who organized the conference. Um, and she's like, well, can I share this with Gail Rubin? <laughs> and I was like, sure, absolutely. Oh, wow. um, and then she loved the chapter. I mean, she had some notes that were helpful, both of them, uh, that helped me get it to the final version. Um, and then I, when it came time to ask for um, people to blurb, I was like, well, we could ask her. She has read part of it. She is, um, you know, she know she's very conversant in this area. Um, very, very important. And so then she said yes, and I'm over the moon, right? I mean, who doesn't want Gail Rubin blurbing their book? <laughs> well, especially when she says that you have produced an original and consequential contribution to the history of the feminist sex wars. And Margaret's attention to the visual aspects of those documents provides long overdue recognition to the period's artists, designers, and activists. Oh, and I'm thinking of Gail's essay, um, the traffic in women yeah, is right. Like usually in feminist theories, that's like the first, one of the first um, for 
thinking around the organization of patriarchal relations and how women are part of this system. And Gail looks to Emma Goldman, I'm sure you know, but the activist, the labor activist, that was her um, essay she wrote was called The Traffic in Women, Emma Goldman. So I like that Gail Rubin kind of looks back into feminist labor activists. Um, but yeah, so I know I asked you a lot of questions in that one question. So I think maybe first, like even with Gail Rubin, like using her work as a lens, um, do you think Gail Rubin even is at odds with, say, an Andrea Dworkin view of pornography? I mean, 100%. I mean, Gail is one of the people who gets targeted. Um, also, one of the things, um, if you've um, seen Gail, the book of uh, essays that comes out of Gail Rubin's work in 2011, I believe it is, called Deviations. Um oh. It's amazing, um, but her her uh, introduction talks also about the powerful need for archives. So she's someone who's archivally minded. As I understand, she has her own very rich collection of resources, uh, her own sort of personal archive um, that she's built over the years, uh, because a lot of this grassroots material is pretty uh, rare and hard to access. Um, and so I, I was really thrilled to get her perspective from that as well. And in addition to everything she's done um, for discourses and, and queer theory, I mean, one of the her piece um, for the conference, for the Barnard conference, is a, the other one of the other sort of foundational essays that get cited, uh, Thinking Sex, right? Um, which then goes into the volume um, Pleasure and Danger, which is the volume that gets published after the conference. Um, it's also, you know, her early work gets uh, into the Gay and Lesbian Studies Reader in 1993, um, which is sort of, you know, it's still Gay and Lesbian Studies, but we're at that moment where we're going to start calling it queer theory. And so she, her work is so foundational in that moment. Um, and I think, too, one of the things, um, you know, we sort of split it like, you know, anti-sex, pro-sex, anti-porn, pro-porn, um, you know, one of the things about the conference, too, wasn't that they were just like, it was a conference they were trying to like invite different viewpoints. And so it wasn't just like, we want to be pro this, but like, we want to acknowledge that there are different like modes of responding to something. Some, you know, with some sort of porn, some women can be disgusted or titillated or turned on or both things at the same time. Right. So it's opening the space for that dialogue and that possibility. Whereas a lot of the, the anti-porn groups, one of the things that they were doing, um, is they would do these like walking tours in like Times Square and other sort of porn districts. Are you a fan of LGBTQ plus books, plays, movies, TV shows? Well, then I have the magazine for you. It's called the Gay and Lesbian Review. The GNLR is a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. So I just had on Dr. Richard Schneider Jr., the founder and editor-in-chief of the GNLR, for the GNLR's 30th anniversary. Happy birthday, GNLR. Dr. Richard Schneider talked about 
their special volume called Outer Appearances, More Faces from the Annals of the GNLR, illustrations by Charles Heffling. They cover current LGBTQ artists such as Harvey Firestein, Melissa Etheridge, Alan Cumming, James Whiteside, Alison Bechdel, and even David Sedaris, and of course, many others like Stephen Sondheim. There's even a supplemental issue that comes with your commemorative volume. And Andrew Halloran, the writer of Dancer from the Dance, he reviews a book called Morris about E.M. Farster's Morris, written by one of our ITBR guests, David Grevin. So we can't wait for you all to experience this beautiful 30th anniversary GNLR issue. Have you heard some of my GNLR interviews, including Dr. Andrew Lear's discussion about male-male love in ancient Greek society and Ignacio Darnad opening and blasting the closet door in the queer male art world? Well, definitely make sure you listen to them after this episode. Head to glreview.org. Make sure you subscribe to their magazine. You'll see there's a section that says subscribe at the top. Enter the promo code ITBR50. That's ITBR50 to receive 50% off, 50% off any print or digital subscription. Enjoy your reading. I am here in Port Jefferson, New York, on Long Island, in one of my favorite stores. It is the Soapbox NY, a Bath and Body Boutique. I'm here with one of the co-owners, Janine. Hi, Janine. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Thank you. Good. So I know you have many winter scents to walk us through. So let's yes. get started. This is from company Michelle Design Works, another one of our favorites. Room spray that you can use any room in your house, just kind of freshens up the room a bit. And what is this by Michelle Design Also Works? by Michelle Design Works is Winter Blooms, one of their new scents this holiday season. It's great. It's um, a hand wash. You can use it in your kitchen or your bathroom. And then here's and something to follow it up with. Exactly. It's a hand and body lotion. And then what is this beautiful decorative candle here? One of our favorites that we actually sell mm. all year round because it's so popular. This is the scent of Fraser Fur by Times. I think I'm becoming addicted to it. Yes. I think you are because you already own one, I believe. I own one <laughs> and it is a decorative candle for me because I'm about to open it, but it's just in such I know the packaging a beautiful is, package. I don't know what's better, the packaging or the scent. I'm using it wonderful. as a holiday decoration. So cool. I'll get to the candle eventually, everyone. Well. But it's wonderful because with Times and their Fraser Fur, not only do they carry the candles, but they also make it in the sense in the diffuser, in soap, the hand lotion, the um, the hand soap. It's just a great line and a great scent. So, Janine, how can everyone out there get their hands on your hand and body and even pajama products? Well, we'd be more than happy to see you in our shop. We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson Village. You could always call us to place an order. We're happy to ship to you. Our phone number is 631-509-1424. You can place an order on our website, soapboxny.com. And you could also find us on Instagram or TikTok at the soapboxny. So many options. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for all of you out there to just enjoy what I love so much about the Soapbox NY. So with yeah, that, thank you so much. Happy winter, everyone. Um, you know, introducing women to porn who in the porn field and like some of this is also like, you know, like people maybe didn't have didn't know about all this, but they would also do these uh 
uh, slideshows where they show images of porn and they had a script they would read of X means Y, right? And it was very like didactic, like you need to know, think that this is harmful. There's no other possible responses, right? And so one of the things um, that the feminists I study and the artists I study were doing, we're trying to push on that and allow there to be multiple interpretations or multiple um, ideas of what something could mean, right? And allowing for that that sense of multiplicity, right? So it wasn't necessarily that it was like porn is empowering, right? But it's more complicated than it's just violence or it's just patriarchal, especially as you say with um, gay pornographers, with feminist pornographers, with lesbian pornographers, um, you know, that that changes the whole the whole game as well right and now it's 2023 and something that your book so poignantly in my mind has us think about in such an interesting perspective is now when we hear barnard or maybe it's just you know when you're embedded in academia i think utopic views around gender identity oh. around queerness like They've even opened up admissions where it's not just like female bodies, like they've had to rethink about what that means. And I know, yes, the alumni have had challenges around that. Like, you know, what do we do with transgender students? And there's been back and forth conversations, but by and large, it still is seen as a bastion of liberal arts study in our moment and is, I think, in an ivory tower-ish setting. Like, right, it's across from Columbia, uh, university. Do you think that we've moved past that type of division in feminist thinking? Or do you think we're kind of returning to cultural war type conversations because of backlashes happening around the country? I mean, I think there's definitely a, a return that some that is happening. Um that one one hundred percent. I mean, um, and it's happening in different ways. So I, I think, you know, it's happening now, so it's hard to sort of track exactly what's happening, but there's a, a uptick in conversations around sex trafficking, which is important, but can also go both ways, conservative or liberal. There's uh, you know, all, and all these things are connected. Uh we've returned to the moment where we start calling queer people pedophiles and we're trying to, you know ban books for being about sex when they're about sexuality and not necessarily about sex and you know seeing something like gender queer as being some it's a, a famous <laughs> graphic memoir about um a character's um uh learning and realizing that they're gender queer and that they're um asexual um and it's uh, been so banned because it's trying to be accessible to um, like adolescents who might also be in the same role. And so it's trying to sort of reach beyond a small community. And so it's dangerous, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. There's so many things to say. I mean, there's some folks in the community are like very much, uh, you know, there's a whole tender queer debate, which I don't, I don't get the whole part of it, but like queers being very, uh, you know, using the language of uh, discourse of therapy to like attack each other and to like sort of be very rigid, right? There's like some rigidity returning to the discourse. And that's when we get these moments of, um, you know, uh, this means this and that's it, 
right? And this is harmful and that's it. There's no room for more nuance, right? And, um, you know, the, there's play on these divisions, right? You are X and therefore we are enemies, right? Um, and so I think that's harmful. Um, and I mean, we need to, you know, be able to hold in our hands, like the, the sense of uh, multiplicity or realize, you know, I teach a queer com I teach queer comics often. Um, and I had like a, a evaluation or ops, you know, review where the uh, students said that they were uncomfortable by the pornographic material. I'm like, I didn't teach porn. Like porn is this thing. I didn't teach porn. Some students were like, why are you censoring this content? We want more of it. And then here was a student calling material that was queer porn. And they, they were like, well, I thought it was going to be more theoretical. Um, so I'm sort of going into a tailspin right now, right? I'm no, not but sure I'm if I curious. answered your question, but I think these things are all sort of in connected um in the moment. And I think there's always you know a recursive return, right? To well, these things, unfortunately. And I'm curious, was there um like how do you feel internally going from, you know, CUNY Grad Center from New York City to Florida? Like how has that been? Like, do you think that you're the teaching or even your student population, are you seeing that the students' views are different or not necessarily because of the young generation? Like the young generation has like a more a nuanced way of understanding of gender and sexuality, you know, is it state specific? I mean, for the most part, my students are all very much here for this. I had some students told me last year, that we're here to be fruity. We're like, they're like, we're here to be fruity. We're very excited. Um, that was a queer comics class. Um, but there is definitely a sense. And I think this is also not just Florida, right? Florida, like most of my students are from Florida. Um, but also the political moment we're in um, since the 2016 election, there's a sense that they need the classroom space more as a, you might call it a safe space as a space to discuss these topics especially as they're also then this is the Florida part as they're being threatened, right? That That's the part that's the Florida part. Um, you know, they're concerned, will we be able to talk about this, right? This is so important, you know, like, will we be able to talk about this in a few years? Um, will we be able to do this research, right? Um, can I do this research? Um, you know, I, do I need to be careful about how I do this work? Um, so those are definitely things that people are worried about. I mean, some of the laws that are being passed are sometimes you see them in their earliest versions and they end up being watered down by the time they get passed. So they end up not being as scary, but they're still very scary. They're being challenged. Um, so that's one thing to think. I feel like it's a large game of chicken. Um, and so they want us to sort of, you know, swerve our car out of the way soon by like leaving the state by going elsewhere, by changing what we teach. And I, you know, I'm not going to change what I teach. Um, I, this is why I was hired to do is hired to do queer and feminist studies, um, visual culture. That's, that's what I will do. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. a well, and I, for you. <laughs> but I feel like there's such an immediacy to like the work you're doing in terms of like, you know, the fireworks moment at Barnard in an academic fireworks sense, right? Like yeah. when it comes to the larger culture, um, debates in academia aren't necessarily 
in my opinion, at the same scale as, say, um, global strife. Or, I mean, there's a lot of other conflicts happening right now that are taking, and they should, you know, take over the news stream and have a lot of analyses. But I do think, like, what your work is doing, Margaret, shows us so much of you know, our academics starting to self-censor themselves. Like I have so many academics who come on my show and I even know like my work being so um, queer male homoerotically oriented and even bringing up discussions around porn and bodies with the 19th century. But like I use different types of archives for my work that there were some who were not necessarily comfortable with my work or like said, I wouldn't be, you know, a committee right now at universities is going to feel threatened by that type of work, um, are going to be nervous to take a chance on hiring someone who does this work. You know, how do you weigh in? I mean, we're also facing an immense, you know, job insecurity in academia. So that's part of these conversations. But I think the work that you're doing is showing, okay, it's good to, you know, be authentic to what you're interested in. And we need to have these really complex gender and sexuality debates. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. That's what we need. Um, and, you know, there are watching, you know, as I have students on the market, of course, um, you know, there are, there is hiring happening, um, as, you know, less, right. But there are some pretty radical things being hired for. And even, you know, places like Texas, of course, places like, um, Florida, we've, our university hired some amazing folks across the disciplines doing stuff on social movements. Um, uh, you know, Latinx cultures, black feminism just last year. Uh, the question is, you know, how much can we support these scholars in times of strife? Um, what support can we offer and where can we say we can't help you or, you know, some, one person is more willing to be shielded than another person. And so that's the part that, you know, worries me um, in terms of making sure um, that you are committed to these folks, right, um, and committed to making them feel safe and secure and able to do um, the important work that they, they need to do. Um, that's that's the hard part, right? Uh, I am lucky that I have amazing colleagues and have felt very supported. Um, you know, doing the re research I do, um, feel very welcome. Um, you know, I said that I went to a quirky school for grad school. I feel like this is also a quirky department, very non-canonically non oriented, very social justice oriented. There's a lot of amazing folks in my department doing work on environmental studies, climate change, um, you know, you name it. <laughs> There's a lot of cutting edge stuff happening in this department. And so it's a place where I do very much feel at home. But, you know, it's it's hard to say if, you know, if it becomes more than just the panopticon regulate self-regulating ourselves and looking at ourselves and all that. And if it, you know, how much will we be safe, especially the the big part here. And I think some people are talking about this, right? Um, but they're trying to target our union, right? Where our protections against discrimination and things are happening and saying that we need to meet a, a higher level of membership. We have until February to do that. We need to meet 60% membership. And if we don't do that, then that's when all the scary, the more scary things can really happen. 
Um, and so that's, you know, that's the thing that we need to like accomplish right now is get to 60% membership in our union. Um, of course, our grad student union is also under attack and they're getting to 60% in a grad student union is perhaps um, more difficult. And of course, unfortunately, the precarious are always under people who are precarious under more attack. Like they teach a lot of our lower division courses, our gen ed courses, which are more targeted by all of these laws. And so I also want to recognize my privilege um, in that um, so far things have been okay because I teach upper division classes that students self-select into. Yeah, well, and because of the work in your book, like you're looking at, you know, academics are actually, I would say, less of a percent of your objects of study. Like you're looking more at published like writers or creative artists, those who, yeah. you know, do photography, um, who are painters that, um, I mean, Gloria Anzadola is a, I want to, you know, shout her out because she's such a, an iconic, you know, queer woman of color, well, not queer woman of color, but feminist woman of color with her, you know, studies um, with like the indigenous community. Um, I just remember my readings when I was in feminist theories, how Gloria Anzadola's words are just, I mean, really shape your thinking when you're reading her writing. But I am curious, do you think there's a, all the like studies and works that you've had to explore for your book, did it show you anything about tension between academics and activists? Because that's an age old long concern in feminist and queer studies is, you know, those in the ivory tower bubble compared to the activists on the ground, are they ever going to bridge the gap? And usually I've seen it's the academics not necessarily wanting to meet the people halfway, like wanting to actually listen and get down off their pedestal. So I mean, what is happening? Yeah, yeah. Imagine that you're riding the Turner classic movie, Great Movie Ride in Hollywood studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the Great Movie Ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly, the list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. 
Enjoy. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. I mean, 100%. I mean, I think Gloria Anzaldu is in some ways a perfect example. Um, so in the book, I have a chapter on her. I talk about her drawings. Um, so when she would give talks, she would um, present either draw on a chalkboard earlier on or um, make these drawings that she present on projectors and sort of trace her finger along them and they would contain her ideas. So there'd be image and text together, sort of very streamlined um, diagrammatic drawings. Um, and she would use them to sort of welcome folks in to sort of you know, some people are visual learners also to like see the thing in a different way to imagine what it might look like in their mind. And so I look at her drawings that sort of deal with Mestiza um, consciousness, which is one of her sort of um, major um, celebrated ideas. But then the part about academia that I want to um, get to is I, I talk um, the, about these drawings. I also talk about drawings from her grad school notes when she was teaching and also when she's taking seminars at UT Austin back in the 70s. And um, I'm looking at drawings from places where she felt like she was accepted and she could do what she wanted to do. So she, she was able to teach a class on um, Chicana women. Um, she took a class on like, um, you know, uh, like East and West perspectives, like getting away from just Western perspectives. Um, and these were places where she felt welcome. But then, you know, and she talks about this in interviews, talks about this in Borderlands La Frontera, which is uh, one of her famous works about having difficulty getting her dissertation topic accepted. Right. And so she goes through multiple um, like iterations of I want to do this topic. And they say, no, you can't do um, like she says, like Latinx, Chicana, or, you know, they wouldn't have used the word Latinx back in the day. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, Chicana, Chicano. No, want to do feminist. No, um, I think she ends up with like Hispanic and they're like, maybe they're like, yes. Um, but at that point, she's done. And so she leaves UT Austin. And so I think the important thing to know about Anzal Du is both of her most major not there are other ones, but the two of her uh, major celebrated works, uh, that's Bridge Call My Back, which she's a collection that she co-edits with Shoya Moraga, and then Borderlands with La Frontera that she writes herself, are done outside of academia. They're done because she leaves grad school because it doesn't want to um, accept that one could study women of color, says there's not enough of a body of um, literature here. And she's like, well, yes, there is, but also let's go like, you know, expand that body of literature. Let's go produce that 
um, material. Let's make that art, right? Um, and so I think, uh, you know, she then did, you know, is always giving talks at universities, always throughout, even during this time period. She goes back to grad school, but there is that fundamental tension there too about um, how much, you know, uh, uh, academia will support, especially this sort of cutting edge, um, socially minded research. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, I spend some time, um, you know, I talk about the artists artworks, but I also spend some time talking about their career and the development of their artwork vis-a-vis -vis their career. Um, and I want to, you know, tell these stories. I spent, uh, you know, I did a little archival research for this, but also one of the things in addition to the archival research was spent a lot of time reading interviews with these artists um, and letting what they said about their work dictate my reading, but also, you know, getting a sense of like the biographical nature of what's happening in their lives alongside the art that they produce. And I think that's what's so wonderful about your work, Margaret, is because we don't always get the biography, like the biographical elements in an academic work when it comes to queer and feminist studies. Right. I mean, the abstract is always so enjoyable and um, full of fantastical possibilities. But to have the groundedness of your biography is great. And I should correct the record for all the Gloria Anzadula fans. She does have a lot of thinking around her queerness. And I know like it's a complicated um, her writing is complicated around it. But she does consider or considered herself queer since, you know, sadly, she's no longer with us. Um, but you know, for my last question, I can't believe we've like flown, it's flown by, but it's been so wonderful. All the topics you've highlighted for us, Margaret, is you've brought it up. And I think this goes into your second book, which is how do you see like what you finished in your first book leading you into the LGBTQ concerns that are going to be so prescient in your second book? Yeah. So, yeah. So the first book has two chapters on comics. I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> people like in comic studies as a small field and people know that, you know, this is the work I do. I publish a lot on comics. Um, so I'm interested also to see how this book sort of lands more broadly and how people think about um, this other work. But I wanted to one of the things going through the archives does is you look for one person or my, my chapters were sort of organized by looking at specific artists, right? And then you start to see the community around them. You start to see, you know, a well-known name or a name you knew brought you into the archives and you start to see all these other names. And so all of this research I've been doing since, you know, over a decade now, um, you know, it really, I got to see a lot more art um, and a lot more uh, very interested in the comics art that ends up you know, all over the movement, but doesn't get enough discussion, right? And so that really led me into thinking about um, writing about LGBTQ comics histories more broadly. Um, definitely like um, Justin Hall's work, um, No Straight Lines has been very influential. There is also just this book last year that just won an award, the LGBTQ comic studies reader. Um, certainly Hilary Shute's work has been great, of course. You, I know you love Ramsey. We're both fans of Ramsey's queer yes, forms. Yes, yes. Ramsey is a friend of the I mean, show. We love, so we love Ramsey. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, and I also have other, you know, other things super influential. Um, but, you know, just what, how these cartoonists were building community, right? And um, how they were finding spaces where they could really develop as artists, I think is really interesting to me. Um, 
and how they're really able to talk about things happening in the movement and to document them, but in a sort of funny, um, irreverent fashion in comics, because, you know, comics have a punchline. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, working on putting together this history from a lot of um, archival research, but also being very attentive to there be a very easy way to write this history, which would end up being very cis-centered and white-centric. Um, and then there's the harder way of doing it. And so I'm trying to be attentive to um, including a lot of voices of artists of color, um, a lot of trans voices, a lot of trans comics history. People um, talk more about the late 90s as a point, uh, like a tipping point in comics where there's a lot of artists, but there are certainly earlier ones. And so I'm trying to make sure to take time to figure out where those artists are contributing and what sort of um, work that they're doing, right? And sort of expanding the field. And so even when I'm talking about lesbian cartoonists, there's a there's a huge publishing boom in the early 90s, but there's some a lot of friction around bisexuality. Bisexual women are allowed in. Um, there's also friction around, um, you know, uh, showing sexually explicit images because of the um, the blowback from the sex wars means that things have trouble crossing the Canadian border. And so a lot of books are censored in this time period. And so there's a lot of different ways also that some of the histories I'm talking about in the first book are sort of going to inform what I'm writing about um, in the second book and sort of doing a deep dive um, on um, some of these these comics because I just think they're really interesting ways of telling the history and really fantastic work. And sure, there's, there's a burgeoning field of queer comic studies, which I'm happy to be a part of, but I think there's room to tell more of the history and to highlight more voices, um, you know, especially ones that we haven't heard from before. And is this from University of Minnesota Press? I had I, I haven't gotten the press figured out oh. yet. I mean, it's okay. still it's going to take me a little bit of time, right? Uh, you know, this first book is still on its way out. Yeah, this first book is hot off the press. Yeah, just, just unintended. Um, so invisible archives. What I love, though, is what you're working on next. This is like what I'm considering part one, like you're setting the scene for us of the 80s, 90s, and then you're going to go full throttle into LGBTQ comics into our present day, I'm assuming. So, um, you know, moving into the 2000s, I love how you've set your work up. This is such a good book. Margaret, I've had a great time talking with you all about it. And there's so much in you know, the pages of the book, we have not even barely, you know, gone. I would say we've, you know, touched the surface, but I don't even know. I think we've only like hit maybe 5%. There's so many bio biographical stories. There's so many figures that you discuss. Um, so Margaret, where can everyone follow you? All your uh, social media channels you want to plug? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I do have a website, which is my okay. name.org. So margaretgalvin.org. And the last name is like gal with a van so that you spell it right. Um, I am on Twitter or X. Um, I think you can search my name, find me there. I'm also on blue sky, Instagram, Facebook, um, all of the good places. I think if you search different usernames, so if you search my name, you'll find me. Um, I'm always happy to connect um, with folks, especially folks doing really um, interesting, great work. I think, um, you know, sometimes this interdisciplinary work, it's hard to find folks, right, who are in different disciplines. And there are a lot more people doing this work than we're always aware of. So I'm always happy to um, learn of new work, right? And, yeah, so uh, network yeah. with yeah. Margaret. 
go to her <laughs> social media channels. Um, I have the link to Invisible Archives in the show notes. Uh, so thank you so much, Margaret. This was a great time, and I can't wait to be back with you in some capacity. You're always welcome back on the podcast. Um, so yeah, thank you, Margaret, and bye to the audience out there. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>